So, uh, new series. We're going to spend eight weeks talking about the Ten Commandments. So for two of those weeks, we'll combine a couple of commandments so that we can uh, figure this out before uh, we get into Advent and Christmas at the end of November, which, can you believe it, is right around the corner now all of a sudden. Um, and so we're going to spend eight weeks talking about the Ten Commandments, which uh, came as a surprise to some of you because we have tried since we've begun to be uh, relevant and uh, fun church. And what could possibly be less relevant or less fun than spending eight weeks Talking about the Ten Commandments, uh, because it's my hunch that most of us don't give the Ten Commandments any thought uh, in our everyday lives. I mean, I'm, I don't. I don't wake up reciting them. I don't know if you do. Uh, you might want to get that checked out or something. You know, that might be weird. But I, I, it's I. Since I was a kid, haven't really thought about it. When you're a kid, you learn it in VBS or Sunday school. When you grow up and become an adult, you don't really think about the Ten Commandments. Unless, you know, that uh, Charlton Heston movie comes on that uh, TNT like it does once or twice a year and you watch it and you laugh. It's so dramatic, you know. Or, you know, once in a while they'll have a, a controversy. The Ten Commandments will be in the headlines because, you know, the ACLU is suing some small town because they won't remove the Ten Commandments from the courthouse lawn or the Capitol lawn or whatever. And, you know, and every few years uh, the Ten Commandments gets caught up in that controversy and everybody wants to know, you know, as a pastor, what do you think about it? And I've never been the pastor that stands up and says, well, the Ten Commandments belong, you know, on public property because this is America, hashtag America, you know, that kind of, I've never been that guy. Like, not, that's not been my thing. It's not because I, I want less of my God in government. It's because I never want my government to get the idea that it's God. You're like, I, I, I want to make sure they stay in their lane, you know, I want to make sure that they know uh, their limitations and that God is God, right? Um, and, and what really disturbs me sometimes about those kinds of controversies is that it's the people fighting the most, you know, the, the politicians using Christian emotion uh, for their own ends, you know, and those, they don't know the Bible from the back of their hand. They don't care, you know, and they, they pretend, they feign, you know, anger about this kind of thing. And I'll give you an example. This guy, uh, this congressman uh, was fighting for this a few years back, and, and he went on uh, the old uh, Colbert Report. How many of you missed the Colbert Report? I know I do. So uh, Stephen Colbert, and uh, he was interviewed. Uh, just, we'll watch the clip, and y'all tell me if you can identify the problem with this guy's uh, logic. You co-sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Why was that important to you? Well, the Ten Commandments is, is not a bad thing mm -hmm. uh, for people to understand and to respect. I'm with you. Where better place could you have something like that than in a judicial building mm -hmm. or in a courthouse? That is a good question. Can you think of any better building to put the Ten Commandments in than in a public building? No. I think if we were totally without them, we may lose a sense of our direction. What are the Ten Commandments? What are all of them? Mm. You want me to name them yeah, all? Yeah, please. Mm. Um, don't murder. Don't lie. Mm -hmm. Don't steal. Uh, I can't name them all. Congressman, thank you for taking time away from keeping the Sabbath day holy and talking. Anytime, Steve. All right, so uh, 
lest we lest we slide into a place of judgment, let's just go ahead and own the fact that if we were put on the spot and asked to name the Ten Commandments, most of us might not come up with many more than three. We might say the same thing he did. There's murder and there's lying and stealing. And I don't know what else, you know, like I think that's where our limitations might lie. If you're a church nerd, you might get coveting. You don't know what it means, but you'll say, you know, like that kind of thing. And, and, and you know, I think maybe as a baseline for this series, if you'll join with me in this challenge, I think if we could just commit to memorizing the Ten Commandments over the next eight weeks, it's not asking that much, I don't think. Jesus took a cross and all that for you. You can learn the Ten Commandments, you know what I'm saying. And so you got eight weeks to do it. And I think, I think we can pull this off. If it helps... For you to learn, and this helped me learning the Ten Commandments, to, to break them down into two, two categories. There are two categories, and there were two tablets, and we believe that one tablet held one category, and the other tablet held the other. The first category is the first four commandments, which are all about uh, the relationship between us and God, God and us, how we relate to God. The second tablet contained the last six commandments, which was all about how we respect each other, how we live and relate with each other. And uh, so both categories are about relationship. And if I could say anything from the outset, maybe the most important thing you'll hear me say today is that with God, relationship always precedes the rules. Relationship always takes precedent, comes before the rules. My concern with us as we approach the Ten Commandments is that I think we come at the Ten Commandments and really a lot of the Old Testament laws from a legalistic mindset. I think we come at it and we think rules. If I had surveyed you when you came in the door today, named the Ten Commandments, you would have started right where this guy did, with the rules. Murder, stealing, lying, etc. That's not where the Ten Commandments start. The Ten Commandments begin with relationship. And if you don't have the relationship stuff figured out, then the rules are just going to seem arbitrary and rude and mean and whatever, religious stuff, right? A lot of your friends are upset about that, about religion. It's just arbitrary rules. Well, yeah, if you don't understand that relationship comes first and the rules, uh, well, they follow uh, after. And that is uh, the most important thing. So the first two commandments we're going to be talking about today are, uh, are, are really an outline for uh, God's proposal of relationship. He says to us in the first two commandments, in a nutshell, I'm your God, your only God. This is not an open relationship. I'm your God, and this is not an open relationship. To really get the Ten Commandments, you're going to have to go on a little walk with me as we uh, hit the backstory. Uh, that led to the Ten Commandments. You can't just read them in a vacuum. There's stuff that led up to it. And I gave you the timeline of the scripture on your study guides. I'm not going to take you through every passage. That's for you to do in your solo study time or with your family at home or, or with your chapter group. All right? But I will say that from Genesis chapter 3, where Eve and Adam eat the forbidden fruit, all the way through Exodus chapter 20, where God gives the people the Ten Commandments, the people are just living in utter chaos. Chaos. How many of you have chaotic lives? You live in chaos. This is Houston. Probably all of us. People were living in total chaos. Brothers were killing each other. 
kings and warlords were ruling with an iron fist. Uh, you know, women were subjected to all kinds of heinous uh, crimes and, and abuse. There was no legal code protecting the underclass, you know, the poor and oppressed. Uh, and, and the Hebrew people themselves, God's chosen people. You think you look up to Hebrew people now in the Old Testament times. At that time, even the Hebrew people were just nomads. They had nothing. They had no land, no king, no protection, no way of life, no culture. The Hebrew word, the word Hebrew itself just was an ancient Mediterranean word, hapiru, which meant literally the dusty ones, just the dirty people. That's who the Hebrew people were in, throughout most of Genesis and early Exodus, just the dusty ones, the dirty ones. And, and, and that is where God meets them. Because God has a plan for them, and God had that plan for them before they started obeying him. That's really important to understand. Before they acknowledged him, God acknowledged them. Before they knew him, God knew them. Before they were anything to anyone, they were everything to God. God took the first step to reach out to these slaves. God reached out to them and said, I'll be your God. I will get you out of this mess as they're slaves in Egypt. But the first thing God told the people to do was not a rule. The first command was not a law or thou shalt not. The very first thing God required of the people when he called them out and said, you're mine, he said, go make supper. Well, prepare a meal. I'll give you the instructions exactly how you should, you should prepare the meal. And when the meal is prepared, if you have enough to share with other slaves, invite other slaves over and eat with you. And if there's still enough, then you should go find some immigrants that don't have anybody. Just like y'all didn't have anybody. Y'all should go find some immigrants and bring them in and call them family, even if you don't speak the same language. Bring them in and share this meal with them. And, and this meal is still around today. We call it Passover. It's very important to our, to our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's also a meal that we have a tip of the cap to every single week. We recognize the Passover meal with communion. That's what this is rooted in. It was the first rule God gave the people. Go make supper. Why? Because food equals relationship. And with our God, everything is about relationship. Everything is predicated on relationship. Without relationship, the rules don't make sense. The day after the very first Passover meal, God said, this is the day. I'm breaking your chains. And he set the people free from their slavery in Egypt. He set them free and he told them to run and then he performed, to that point, the greatest miracle the world had ever seen. He, he split the waters and they ran through the Red Sea and he destroyed their enemies behind them and they were free. But it didn't take long, if you know Exodus, the book of Exodus, it didn't take long from Exodus 14 when they were freed to Exodus 16, six weeks after benefiting from the greatest miracle the world's ever seen for them to forget that it ever happened. It didn't take any time for them to forget all the benefits of relationship with God. All the ways God picked them up off their feet, off, their, off the ground and dusted them off and said, I'll get you out of this mess. It didn't take long at all. This is Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, saying, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out here to kill us with hunger 
See, they're, <laughs> they're free, but they don't know how to be free. They don't know how to live free. There's a difference between being free and living free. And uh, this, to me, this complaining sounds really familiar because it's my story too and I think it's many of yours. Because the story Houston as a church, we are made up of a bunch of new believers and a bunch of people that are on the fence of belief and a bunch of people, this is probably the majority, who thought they were Christians for a long, long time and then were confronted with the gospel and realized they weren't ever Christians to begin with and now you are, right? And, and so God has, Jesus has set us free, but we still don't know how to do it. We still, as we wander around in this newfound freedom, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to be free. And some of us even begin to long for the stuff we used to spend our time doing before Jesus came along. And I hear this all the time. I had this conversation three times this week. I know the why. I know why I need Jesus. I know he came to save me, but I don't know how to do it from here. You know, I know I was living in chaos, but I kind of missed the chaos. You know, it's only natural. I think all of us experience that if you spend most of your life partying, with the same people and going out and having a good time and then you decide to leave partying because you're going to follow Jesus. Or if you spend your, your life, you know, yelling at your kids and you decide i got to be a different kind of parent because I'm following Jesus. Or you spend your life, you know, buying a bunch of useless crap you don't need because it feels good to buy stuff, you know. And now you know that's not okay and you're following Jesus, you know. And if, if you spend your life doing that and one day you're bound to wake up and wish tonight I could go out and party again like I used to. I wish I could yell at my kids again like I used to because they really, really deserve it. You know, I wish <laughs> I, I wish I could sleep around like I used to because that meaningless sex was such a release. You know, I wish I wish I could, you know, spend money like I used to because it just felt good to buy stuff even if I didn't need it, even if I hated it the moment I opened the box. I still liked buying it. There was something, uh, you know, cathartic about it. You're bound to wish for what was if you don't yet know how to be who you are, who Jesus has set you free to be. That's normal, and that is what uh, is going on with the Hebrews when God confronts them in, uh, in the wilderness. God is trying to bring order from their chaos. And that's what I love about the Ten Commandments for them and for us, is that God offers simplicity in the face of complexity. The Ten Commandments were not intended to complicate people's lives, but to simplify them. They were living chaos, not sure what to do with themselves or with their society. God says, here it is. Love me and respect each other. Love me, take care of each other. God says, let me be your God and no one else, and I'll show you how to live free. And then he gives them the, uh, the Ten Commandments that simplify their existence. Now, uh, thousands of years have passed. Uh, everything has changed in the last 3,000 years, except one thing. God is still in the business of bringing order from chaos. And if you came here today feeling like you're never caught up, you're never enough, you're never successful, you're never good at anything because your life is utter chaos and you're a frazzled mess, I'm telling you, God's still doing the same thing he was doing 3,000 years ago, bringing order from our chaos. That's the beauty of the boundaries of God. 
the boundaries of God. That's what I think of when I think of the, test, uh, the commandments. They're not these arbitrary rules. It's not God saying, hey, you see these rules? You do this stuff, and I'll take care of you. It's God saying, hey, hey, remember? Remember all those times I took care of you? Remember all those times I looked after you? Remember that time I set you free? Remember that time I gave you something you didn't deserve? Remember that time I picked you up and dusted you off when no one thought you were anything? Now, let me show you how to live. Let me show you how to be free. That is, for me, the message of the commandments. Let's read the first two today that we're going to look at more closely. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is on the earth beneath or anything in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, uh, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my words. Let's keep this up just a second. We got to deal with that last part, don't y'all think? We got to figure out what that means. Because normally in the Methodist church, we'll just omit that <laughs> and pretend like it's not there. We would have stopped this passage about halfway through and just not even dealt with it. But it's there. And a lot of your friends don't go to church or give Jesus a chance because of verses like this. Because they hear an arbitrary, mean God punishing kids. Is that really who our God is? A punisher of children for their parents' iniquity? I'm not sure that's the point. But let me say something that's not going to be fun to hear. If, if you're under the illusion that living selfishly, and you deciding that you are the center of the universe, that you are the most important person and spending all your time and money and passion on yourself, if you're under the impression that living just for you is not going to have an impact on your children and their children, you are deceived. You can call it God's punishment or you can call it your own fault. Whatever that is, that's going to be your legacy. And you hand down a legacy. We just talked about this last Sunday. I hope you haven't forgotten yet. The legacy you hand down makes a difference. Now, that's not all of it, though. Because the real, I think, important part of that second half of this passage is that while your selfishness, your self-centeredness, your shameless sort of, you know, putting yourself at the center of, of the universe, while that only impacts two, three, or four generations after you, if you decide to bow before God and God alone, if you decide to give only God your allegiance, if you have that humility about you to wake up every morning and say, God, you're my God, I'm not God, you are, nothing else is, football isn't, kids aren't, school isn't, nothing else is, you're God, I'm not. If you pass on that legacy of humility and generosity, 
generosity and selfless sacrifice, it will bless a thousand generations. Not two, not three, not four. A thousand generations will be blessed by your faithfulness. That to me is what this is saying. And that is the most important thing we can remember today. Maybe is that your legacy matters more than you think. Leaving a legacy of of a God-centered existence might be the most important thing we do. Now, what we worship, how we worship, it matters to God. Because as this passage says, God is a jealous God. What we do with that, God is jealous. Some of you have a bad experience with that word jealous. You've got a crazy ex. Who won't leave you alone. You've got a Facebook stalker. You know, that, that's what we think of. You know, I hear people on the dating scene. I don't want somebody who's going to be jealous. Okay. But jealousy doesn't have to be unhealthy. If you love someone, I hope you're jealous for them. If you're in love with your wife, I hope you're jealous for her. And wives, for your husbands. And it's not just romantic either. I'm a father of two and I'm jealous for their affection. I'm jealous for their love. I'm jealous for, for, for playing, a, me playing a central role in their lives. And if they rebel against my love or if someone else tries to play my role as father, you know, something wells up inside of me. It's uh, not always great. And I, I want to reassess the situation and reassert where we're at here. My authority as their father. Because I'm jealous for that. That's, that's, that's part of love. And uh, this passage says that our God is a jealous God. I get jealous too. The recent example I could think of uh, for this actually happened last Sunday. My son is six. Uh, his name is Cohen. He plays uh, peewee baseball. It's his first go at peewee baseball. And uh, some of you know how important baseball is to me. Uh, I am not the coach of his team. Uh, but I should be. <laughs> and I have to sit there every week while some, uh, you know, patent attorney <laughs> teaches our kids this bastardized version of baseball. And, and I, have to, I have to watch it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and sometimes it's really hard because it's just, it's, <laughs> it's sacrilege uh, to me. It's, it's the closest thing to heresy this, this last uh, week. Uh, let, me, let me set the table for you here. Some of you are going to completely check out of the story. I'll see you in about five minutes when we're done <laughs> talking baseball. Uh, two outs, uh, runner on second. The other team's batting. Two outs, runner on second. Tie game. You with me? And uh, this, uh, this guy, this uh, attorney, this uh, son of God, I'm sure, is uh, <laughs> telling the boys that if it's hit to you, you throw the ball to third. <laughs> it's not what you're supposed to do. Because uh, the runner doesn't even have to go to third. It's not a force out. And even if he does go to third, it's risky to throw to third because the third baseman's over there picking his nose. And, you know, you have to apply the tag. And who knows what will happen. It's two outs. The ball's hit to you, you throw it first. 
And so my boy's playing first, and I'm close enough to him in proximity that I, he can hear me, and the coach can't. And so I say, Colin, Colin. And uh, I said, if it hits you, if it hits you, you just touch first. And he said, Daddy, the coach said, throw it to third. And I said, no, 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 no. If, if they hit it to you, just, just touch first. And he said, he said, Daddy, you told me to listen to the coach. <laughs> you know what I said? I said, but I'm your dad. I'm your dad. Touch first. <laughs> and then they hit it and nobody caught it and nothing happened. And we lost. So for me, when I read the Ten Commandments, especially those first two, for me, I read God saying a similar thing to us. I know what you've heard. I know you've heard with two outs and a runner on second, you take the ball and throw it to third. I know you've heard. I know you've heard that workaholism is cool. I know, you've, I know you've heard that it's cool to keep your calendar so full you never have any extra time for God or for anybody else. I know you've heard that uh, the more money you make, the more women will find you attractive. I know you've heard the more women you sleep with, the more of a man you are. I know some of you have heard that the skinnier you are, the more men will want you. I know you've heard that success Climbing the ladder is uh, the most important thing. I know you've heard that having a, a husband and, and, and kids is your purpose in life. I know you've heard that if your spouse isn't meeting your needs or making you happy, then you are entitled to a divorce because you deserve happiness. I know you've heard you're the center of the universe and the sun, moon, and stars revolve around you. I know you've heard that, but I'm your dad, God says. I'm your dad, and I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to show you how to live in a way that's going to keep you alive and set you free. Later on, about a thousand years later, when the, they asked Jesus what the most important commandment was, Jesus says something everybody here knows probably. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He adds mind to the Deuteronomy passage, right? Love him with your mind. But... This isn't even one of the commandments. Did you ever notice that? I think most of us think that's the first commandment. No. Jesus goes off script. This one doesn't make the top ten. And he picks something else. Why? Because if you don't interpret and read and understand the rules and the law and the commandments through the lens of love, then all you're going to have is empty and rote religion that just wants to control and manipulate people. It must be understood through the lens of the Father's love. Jesus said, I haven't come to eradicate or dismiss the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I have come to fulfill the law. What we find in Jesus is that the fulfillment of the law is the love of the Father. The fulfillment of the law is us falling in love with the Father. I want to end with a very serious question that I have no idea how to ask in a way that doesn't sound cheesy or sentimental. I wrestled with this all week. I wanted to find a way to ask this question. I didn't have to turn my man card in. I couldn't figure it out, and I don't have a man card anymore. So here it is. 
point blank. Do you love God? Before you let your knee-jerk reaction slip out of your mouth, I want you to sit with that question for a second because I did this week a lot. Do you love God? I wrestled with my own experience this week and I realized I know God. I have God. I respect God. I even fear God. But I have to be really careful when answering that question, whether I love God. Because if I'm really honest, and I was convicted by this this week, love is more than just theology. Love is more than just thinking about God by reading a book. Love is more than just coming to church and preaching a sermon. Love is an expression. Love is, a, is, is an emotion. Love, love is, uh, it is a feeling. And I'm, I'm not real sure, if I'm honest, that when I think about God, I experience the same or I feel the same kind of affection in my heart that I feel when I think about my wife or my kids. I'm not sure I moved in an affectionate way to express my love to God in the same way that I am moved when we come to church even or when I uh, drink my first cup of coffee, I'm moved in an affectionate way for that coffee even or for Vietnamese food, all this ridiculous, the Houston Astros that break your heart. Every year, I still am affectionate for them. I cheer for them. And I wish I could say the same thing about God all the time. That I'm affectionate toward him. That the affections of my heart are his. And then I tell him that I love him. Because if you knew my story, all of it, which I will never share in public, you would know how insane it is of me to forsake my love for God. If you knew how many times he's delivered me from slavery. If you knew how many times he's picked me up when no one else would and dusted me off and said, I'm going to take care of this. If you knew how many times I was dead broke and then a check arrived. If you knew how many times I was completely depressed and despondent and someone called. If you knew how many times a feeling of love and care swept over me when I thought there was no one out there. If you knew how good God has been to me, you would wonder to yourself, what kind of a spoiled brat is he? You would say, how could you? And I know, I know I'm not the only one. I know many of you have the same thing going on. Maybe you love the idea of loving God. Or you love other people thinking you love God or you love the benefits of loving God. But do you love God as your heart moved when you think of him and what he's done? Do you remember all the things he's done for you to set you free? Have you considered all the gifts he's given us for no good reason? Have you stopped to thank him for the breath in your lungs that he had no reason to give you, the life you never earned or deserved? Have you ever stopped to say thank you, God, for food and 
coffee and water in that order. And thank you, God, for the stars in the sky. And thank you, God. We get to go and sing songs and we get to dance and we get to celebrate and we get to drink when you're 21. And we get to, we get to, we get to enjoy life. We get to go to the beach. What happens when we go to the beach? We complain. Ew, Galveston. Gross. We complain at the beach. How spoiled are we? How must that feel for God? I know. I know you've been created for a purpose. And I know you've heard that purpose is your success. I know you've heard that purpose is raising a family. Kids, I know you're hearing that purpose is getting into the right school. I'm telling you that your purpose is more than that. With the Ten Commandments, God's saying, I'm your dad. And I'm telling you what your purpose really is. And it's to love me. And to be loved by me. So prepare a meal. Break some bread. Share it with your friends. And experience my love. And once again, we find this God of ours simplifying our complexity, bringing order from our chaos, picking us up, dusting us off, and making it okay again. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Your life is not a performance. You are not an actor on a stage. God is not keeping score. Before you ever knew him, he knew you. Before you ever acknowledged him, he acknowledged you. Before anyone thought you were anything, he thought you were everything. And in Jesus, he poured his life out so that you would know today how deeply loved you are. He said to you, I'm going to get you out of this mess. Because he's your dad, because he loves you, and all that he asks in return, all that he wants is for you to love him back, is for you to remember how he's loved you, and for you to love him back. So, if you're like me, a skeptical, cynical person, and if that concept is hard to wrap your head around, and you feel like that's something that just really religious people do, I get it. I'm going to challenge you to go beyond just being in love with the thought of loving God, to take it a step further this week. I'm going to give you a very simple challenge you ready? This week, every day that you wake up in the morning, for the next six days, before reaching for your phone, 
before turning on the TV, before checking out Trump's Twitter feed to see what he said last night, before getting wrapped up in the chaos of everyday existence, I want you to stop, say two very simple things. Keeping in mind everything God has done to rescue and provide for you without you ever deserving it. Keeping in mind the gift of life in your lungs, breath in your lungs and life and the gift of joy and the gift of family. Remembering all of that, two things. Thank you. And I love you. If you're thinking to yourself, well, he's God. He knows. He knows I'm thinking it. If you're married, how's that working for you? If <laughs> Sometimes you have to say it to know you even feel it. I believe these five words are simple and powerful enough to reorder your life, bring order from chaos, simplicity from complexity, and help you live free. Thank you. I love you. Say it with me. Thank you. I love you. Let's go to God in prayer.